Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. I'm Trevor Maxwell. I'm a stage four colon cancer survivor, and I've got a message for other men. You don't have to go through this alone. What does it mean to man up to cancer? It means reaching out instead of isolating. It means having the courage to accept help along the way. To me, manning up isn't just about being tough. It's about knowing that we're stronger and smarter as a pack than we are as lone wolves. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. Happy 2021. Um, You know, it's funny. It's like people blame 2021 or 2020, the year, as if the year was bad. Uh, You know, I've got someone here who's going to tell you it wasn't 2020, the year. It was us that are the problem. Matthew Zachary is my guest today. Matthew Zachary, I'm going to get into a little bit of his bio here. The guy is a legend. Hi, Matt. Hello. Matthew is... You were saying a legend. Go on. Continue. Uh, The legend, please. (laughs) I will. Matthew Zachary, I'm going to read this. 21 years old, diagnosed with brain cancer. That was back in 1995, making him a, I'm not so great at the maths, but I think he's a 25-year survivor now. Yes, sir? That's like you divide by five. That's the easiest math. (sighs) You know, I'm a writer. I stay away from that stuff. Fine. Own it. Matthew is the founder of Offscript Media, the first audio broadcast network focused on consumer health and patient advocacy. It's a mouthful. He's going to explain what that is later. Also, you may have heard of a little organization called Stupid Cancer. Matthew Zachary founded that shit uh, way back when. And under his leadership, 2007 through 2018, Stupid Cancer became the largest and most influential young adult cancer organization in the world. If I had production right now, I would put in some awesome sounds. Matt Zachary, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to swap spaces here and be interviewed by you this time. Did I get all that right? I know there's more. Uh, The math was fine. Everything else was just, you know, my dad would say good enough for government work. First of all, thank you for supporting the Man Up to Cancer mission. I reached out to you about a year ago. And you have been very generous with your time, uh, bringing me in, talking with me, giving me some mentorship, having me on your show. Um, That's huge, man, especially for me just coming, you know, trying to trying to tackle this uh, radical idea that men might need some support going through cancer. Yeah, it was a real trigger for me in the best sense, because, you know, as much as I tried to keep Stupid Cancer like a man brand, and it really was one of the manly brands, and I say brand in the cancer world, you know, we, we cursed and we went to Vegas and had strippers at our conferences and things you can't get away with. It was ridiculous what we got away with in the early days as a, a largely male-led nonprofit. And right. as much as, look, I know, I know your audience. I'm part of a Facebook group. I can speak the way I want to speak. But I, yeah. I, the fact that anyone that remembers like when Sears went soft with the softer side of Sears... <laughs> Like it was a fucking hardware store. I went there for wrenches. I didn't go there for blouses and underwear. So I feel like stupid cancer got you know a little diversified in, in in a way that I never intended it to. I think it needed to follow its natural evolution. I like the river to carve itself, never plan. But I've always felt that as much as I tried to keep it manly and edgy. And it wound up attracting a larger female audience than I could have possibly expected. And we were always 70-30 for years. Years right. and years, 70-30, 75-25, even like 66-33 one year. We really did track who our crowd was. But the guy voice was never really there. And if it right. was there, it was always softened 
because we had donors and I had to not say fuck so much. And there was a, you know, there were, you know, people like that. I did that on the radio show. Running the organization was different than when I was on the air. But when you hit me up and I said, finally, there's a manser, which was the word that we used years ago that just didn't take off. Uh, it was really, I was like, ah, oh, finally, a wolf pack, something that makes me feel masculine. Oh, my God. Like, here we are. And and I'm Zach Galifianakis proudly. <laughs> Absolutely. You're the best friend a guy could ever ask for. The fedora to my trucker hat. <laughs> yes, um, we, we agreed on that. Uh, yeah, no. I mean, so you hit on that. When you say the softer side, that's right, because for so long, anything out there in cancer advocacy became became very soft. And it took, the other day, I had one guy in the group let me know that he's trying to push um, testicular cancer awareness at his workplace. And he mentioned, so he sent an email to HR and, and he wanted to send out an email to the to the employees. And they said, so they sent it out and they removed the word testicular and just talked about his cancer battle. Cause it's not okay. We can talk about breast cancer till the cows come home, but God forbid we talk about testicular cancer. They took it out. Yeah. Yeah, they really do. By the way, I just, I, I have to let your crowd know, cause I, I think I posted this once in the group, but speaking of testicular cancer, I think it is TC awareness month or something like that. Yeah. Uh, just for, for those listening, go to YouTube and look up a YouTube video by the Sean Kimmerling Testicular Cancer Foundation. It's a guy in a scrotum suit skating in a hockey rink, and he gets checked, and he gets like destroyed by another hockey player, but it's all about checking your balls. And it was the first time YouTube let that kind of thing fly, and it was groundbreaking. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I love it. Say it again. Where can people find that? Uh, on YouTube, it's the Sean Kimmerling Testicular Cancer Foundation. Again, you're going to have to look for it, but it's basically... It's a guy skating around in the giant scrotum suit in the ice skating rink. It's not if you you'll figure it out. We're smart enough to figure that out. All right, we're gonna post that in the group as well in the Howling Place. So I want to get to to more of stupid cancer stuff, but before we talk, dig up you know those skeletons of your past. Let's talk about your present off script media. Tell our people what it is and what you're doing. Well, the gist is that when I left stupid cancer in uh, God like January 2019, it's like almost it's, it's been a phenomenal yeah. two years couple of years yeah the one thing that i genuinely missed uh having left was being on the air being the radio show guy and having this voice and convening conversations and amplifying all sorts of stuff and and people were relying on listening to what i had to say because it was really niche right uh, so i took a sabbatical and i wanted to get back behind the mic but in the spirit of don't start another fucking podcast <laughs> which by the way <laughs> is on my linkedin page an article i wrote got twenty thousand likes but, See, I, hey, I read that article, by the way. Unfortunately, I started my podcast before I read it. Thank right. you. Right. No, no. Well, you know, I do what I can. I try. I'm here for you. Honestly, I am. But this whole idea, don't just start a podcast because there's a million fucking podcasts. And yet, right. I know that I have a skill and a talent and, and the convening. It didn't. I, You're the OG. But, but on, and I appreciate that, but I didn't want to be dependent on advertising. And I right. wanted to basically start a media company that did nothing but amplify voices. And at its core, Offscript Media is an audio broadcast network built on the DNA of audio, of voices and advocacy and creating, I hate to say the word, everything's a fucking cat poster these days, but, you know, what is the actual change that needs to happen because it only comes from the ground up? What's the new movement that needs to occur this coming decade that's been flummoxing for, for the last 10 years, but being built on the shoulders of greatness? 
And we're at a point of consumer revolution in healthcare for the next. And this is not a Bernie Siegel, Bernie, sorry, Bernie, Bernie Sam, <laughs> wrong Sanders. Bernie, wrong Bernie. It's not a Bernie Sanders Bernie. revolution. It's not. It's not that. <laughs> it's the only change that ever happens is when people force it to happen. So I feel like Upscript Media is in a unique place to be a podcast network, an audio research company, and an educational publisher of shit to listen to when shit happens. And you're taking it back because that phrase, you know, the patient centric. BS and the lip service from so many in the institution has really, they have cemented that man. And and I feel like with Offscript, you're taking that back and saying like, this is the patient voice right here. Well, again, it really does channel my inner eighties guy and that we all miss corded phones and, and, you know, back before my, my son, my, my kids are 10. He was asking me, you know, life before uh, caller ID. And <laughs> I was like, well, you just had to hope the other person wasn't a dick. <laughs> you know, it's like before doorbells could go to your phone. Yeah, leaping on faith. <laughs> yeah. So, so just, I like the, I just like speaking to the aggrieved aging millennial Gen Xer younger boomer. And it, it, it harkens back to a time when we only had radio. Right. We had nothing. We had TV, which is fine. You know, we had Saturday morning cartoons and game shows in the morning and soap operas in the afternoon and, you know, nightly news before the... They ruined that. Right, right. But right. this notion of audio only. And with the researches of podcasting, I think there's a, there's a, it's a reckoning in America, at least, that we're going back to the old fireside chats in our pocket. And we want to listen a little more than watch because we're, you know, fucking Zoom fatigued to death. And <clears throat> Oh, God. Yeah, there's so much there. Anyway, the gist <clears throat> is that all this podcasting in the world hasn't really hit healthcare as policy, practice, and systemic change. So there were voices like yours. There were amazing human beings get behind a mic and can speak into the ether, not like Abe Simpson yelling at a cloud, but to actually build a community, yeah. these micro-communities. <laughs> but what is the community of communities of podcasting and healthcare? And that's the gist of our company. So you've been busting your ass. Like, What's under the umbrella right now? How many shows do you have or, or sub-brands under there? I felt this year was just my Steam Valve release. I've done 113 shows this year. Holy moly. <laughs> I just <laughs> I just cranked the chainsaw, bro. And but again, I went back to my my trough of my friends and my colleagues and I was like, I'm back on the air. Who wants to come on? And it was like the stanchions came out in front of the red carpet and me, me, me. It was great. And that's for out of patience, right? Your is that your flagship show? Yeah, the flagship show is out of patience. I have done uh I do another podcast for the National Organization for Rare Disorders, Nord which is yep. like stupid everything else. Basically, they're everything else that isn't oncology, although they have some oncology. So NordPod, we did a pilot. We did 11 episodes, and we're creating the voice of rare disease, which is brand new, and a few years from now, it'll have six figures of downloads because they have millions of people going to their website. So planting that seed, I'm ha I don't want to do more than two podcasts. It's more than enough. <laughs> um but we also have another show about hypochondria run by two cardiologists called Am I Dying? Based on a New York Times bestselling book. And Love we it. have one of the leading cannabis and culture podcasts called Brave New Weed run by my friend Joel Dolce, which is getting tons of traffic, tons of listening. But again, the, the intimacy of listening is different when it's serial or slow burn or politics or entertainment or something transactional. It really hasn't transferred to long form or even short form education. And here's why. Because it's shit you never want to have to listen to. 
No one <laughs> wants to hear a show about stem cell transplants. No one wakes up and says, I can't wait to go on Katruda. You know, so there's there's no demand for the model we're building. There's only supply of people that didn't know they needed it. So it's a right. very different way. So that's the engine that drives us to answer your question. We're an ad agency at the end of the day, but without the ads. We produce content for clients that has downstream value, which is jargon for they make people listen to it. And then we do research on whether it actually changes behavior. So how accessible, I know, so I've listened to a bunch of your shows and I, I guess I know the answer to this, but tell, tell us in your, own, in your own thinking, how accessible is your show to, you know, average Joe patient, like the guy, you know, people out there in our Wolfpack, guys going through cancer? So I, I've, I've intentionally taken a different track with my attitude and tone. I'm, I'm not, yes, I'm the cancer guy and I'll, I'll, I'm not going to disown that or disavow that. Most of my shows have been advocacy-driven in the oncology space because those are my people. But I've done episodics on, I don't know, like what the hell's wrong with uh, misogyny in medicine or right. uh, financial toxicity when you're unemployed because of bias in HR, right? So very there's a big one. Yeah, yeah. huge issues. I, I just show in systemic racism in, in trial development for, for black women in Africa. Like, I, how do I get that? I don't know. So, but <laughs> yeah, I guess where I'm going with this is I don't know if I should be a one-size-fits-all radio talent. And if you can find the shows that speak to you, right. listen to those. If you can find the shows, if I can be the right kind of bullia base for certain people... I don't want to be all things to all people. I'm not going to be Gary Vaynerchuk. I'm not Brene Brand. I'm not looking to be on every channel in every space up your ass every day. Right. I want to be the guy that you can find what's on the aisle in the supermarket that's right for you. Uh, right. And like you said, that you know that you <laughs> never expected to be looking for. And then all of a sudden, you have a lot of questions. You have a lot of needs. You need education. You need people you can trust, man. I mean... Well, it's I did, hard to find voices you can trust out there when, when people are talking about medicine and healthcare. It's the authenticity. It's absolutely like to you. It's like, you know, you're not going to recommend a specific prescription for your listeners, but you bring an audacity and a mendacity to the conversation that's attractive for guys to not feel alone, to right. not feel like their body part is defining them, to not be alienated if it's in a different part of their body. It's we used to say it's stupid cancer that it's not about what you have. It's about what you have in common. So when you are honest about healthcare yeah. and authentic and, and you speak the truth about mechanisms and things that relate to the most powerful players in healthcare, you're bound to upset some folks. Are you upsetting enough folks yet? Do you have, a, do you have the right ratio of people that don't like you and then the ratio of people that really don't like you? My co-founder uh, of Stupid Cancer, Kenny Kane, would always say that our scandal is pending. <laughs> I, I I probably have pissed off a lot of people, but they still give me money because I help them make money. It's a little Howard Sternish in that. That's sense. magic. It's a little Howard Sternish. I'm not Teflon by all means, but honestly, you know, I'm not naming names. I'm not like that kind of like I'm not that vindictive. But no one's gonna deny the fact that the entire structure of the at least the American healthcare ecosystem, the economy of how it was created was never in the interest of the citizen. It was mm. the interest of shareholders. Right. And 
One can argue both sides. And this is where the word both sides comes in handy because without having all this profit, you can't have innovation. You can't develop a vaccine in the year with European counterparts. Like there are things that happen that need to have massive cash flow, massive profiting, and an incentive to keep doing that. The downside, like anything, is capitalism is only concerned about profit. And where is the purpose capitalism that just doesn't exist? No one's arguing with that. I'm not saying fuck you this, fuck you that. You just have to appreciate the economy from which you're born into if you're an American. Absolutely. Uh, Well said. I got nothing to add on that. Now I want to circle back in time to the young Matthew Zachary. Um, I didn't have hair back then either. So so you... Now, I'm going to say this word very carefully because some of the meatheads in the howling place might misconstrue what I'm saying here, but you were an excellent and are an excellent pianist. Uh, <laughs> Go on. Comp- composer. Um, so you, you're a very talented young man going through college, 21 years old. Get, set us up a little bit about what your life was like uh, before you got the life asteroid of your brain cancer diagnosis. Yeah, in the Mesozoic era of Matthew Zachary. Yeah, I was born and raised in New York. I, I was always like this humble kid that got beat up. I, I, I could probably could have used Cobra Kai back then, but I, you know, would not have been a good bully. Not at all. <laughs> I think the insecurity is what drove me, you know, getting denied by girls and being a band geek and all that stuff. But I, I started playing piano at 11, which that is, is late. fuel, right? Right. Total yeah. fuel. Oh, yeah, right. Here's to all of us that did not peak in our fucking 20s. Cheers. <laughs> I just. Uh, good night. Try the veal. I'm out. Good. But. <laughs> but anyway, I got to college and I knew what I wanted to be. And I studied film composition and jazz and classical music and, and, and new age music. I started composing symphonies and whatnot. Got into USC film school. Was going to study with Hans Zimmer and the late Jerry Goldsmith. And then the summer of 95, my left hand stopped working. I, I lost the ability to arpeggiate, which for the non-musicians is using your fingers very quickly to run up the piano and down. No reason why, misdiagnosed, went six months, all the stuff, blah, blah, blah. I'm making light of it. It was fucking horrible. Yeah. Uh, Also a lefty, couldn't use my uh, a pen or a pencil. I owned a laptop because I was a geek, so I typed with my right hand on PowerBook 180 for the Mac geeks in the 90s that are out there. (laughs) Ultimately diagnosed with a a giant lump in my brain, a golf ball in my my cerebellum, which was rare, very rare. Most brain tumors are in your brain. This was kind of your brain-ish. Yep. I was... I was pleasantly surprised that there's something actually wrong with me, you know, because you right. just told so often, like, oh, it's in your head. Yes, it's in my head. It's anxiety. You know? <laughs> yes, it's just anxiety. I mean, carpal tunnel, you know, meningitis, Epstein-Barr, um, uh, multiple sclerosis, an ischemic incident, everything that wasn't a brain tumor. So um, I don't fault, you know, I guess community medical centers for not knowing a 20-year-old brain tumor. Not typical symptoms, but I'm glad that I live in New York. We have the best care. We found the right doctors that had the right surgery. They said, this is what we think you can do because you're like one one in 200 a year was what they told me my the tumor was and mm-hmm. not being 12 because it usually happens in your single digits. Very rare, insanely rare. Nothing off the shelf. No cookie cutter recipe book to say, here's what to do with Matt. So yeah, scary as fuck. And I was in denial, like we should be as invincible idiots in in our 20s. Right. My parents took the brunt of that. My brother was still in college. And I I just 
had to cancel grad school. And for me, that was the worst day of my life back then. Did I hear you say in another podcast that someone told you you had six months to live? Yeah, I was uh, I was given six months to live, and I was read my rights by a priest, which was always fabulous. I wound up telling him I was Jewish and went away. But either way, still, I probably could have used it in the moment. Um, but whatever happened, yeah, six months to live at 21 years old. Uh, my whole life ahead of me, like anyone else, nodding head syndrome. And, and right. they're like... If you survive six months, let's see what happens. And then they wanted chemotherapy, which I turned down because it would have put nerve damage in my hands and I wanted to play piano. Can you imagine being 21 and decide, having to decide that you'd rather die in five years with the capacity to rehabilitate and be a pianist or live 80 years and not have that passion? Right, I had to make that decision. Yeah, that's one of those bad "would you rather" game questions, right not, there. Not a good "would you rather." It's an FM, what FMK in all the wrong ways. <laughs> so obviously, here you are. We don't need to go through the rest of the Cliff's notes because, hey, you got to cancer free, and you've been there for a long time, and then you turned it into this magic thing. But what I do want to get into is is you know the theme of Man Up to Cancer, which is. Cancer can be isolating, especially for men. Wow, 21-year-old Matthew Zachary in college, brain cancer. I can't imagine a more isolating diagnosis. In what ways did you feel isolated and in what ways did and how and if you did, how did you get out of that? I mean, through the lens of the 90s, which I don't know, maybe outside of Mark Cohen uh, was pretty shitty. Um, <laughs> you know, do 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 do. I don't want I can't hear this like poison in my ears because that was playing you know that and jagged little pill i couldn't i can't deal with oh yeah music. You, i mean the 90s more, so sucked you're triggered for everyone it really just sucked for everyone because you know again through this lens of how far we've come versus where we were i'm a living testament somehow the oldest survivor of my tumor in mm. the in the world in the country whatever who remembers what it was like in the 90s not just as this struggling 20 something before the internet with alcds but also someone who didn't know that it was even remotely plausible to have support. That wasn't obviously my friends and family, which again, they're always great. They do what they can, but they're not the same. So, and it's not their fault. And this is our narrative. Ironically, I could not have asked for a better accidental peer when I stumbled upon, and I wrote up at him on LinkedIn, his name is Craig Lustig. And Talk about niche peers. One thing to meet a guy, he was brain tumor, bald, Jewish, from New York City, and went to my college and was in the acapella group the year before I started it. That's Bizarro Matthew. It's He really is Bizarro <laughs> Matthew. Only he was gay and I wasn't. But outside of that, fantastic. You know, and Craig, again, like this is so unique and it's probably irreplicable. He was on the board of directors of a, of a group in D.C. called the National... Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, NCCS, which to me is the most powerful consumer patient lobby group in the Beltway on the good side of things. Yeah. Founded by my mentor, Alan Stovall, in 1986. Historical shit with that group. And he was like this Wizard of Oz curtain. And in 2002 or three, when he, he plucked me out of this ether of depression in my, you know, when plan B becomes plan A, I wound up working in advertising instead of fixing Macintoshes and tech support. And I was like, holy shit, 
How is it possible I just went seven years thinking I'm the only guy? Mm. I mean, the only person. I don't know any women mm. or nothing. Zero. Like, I'm in New York, and, like, this wasn't a thing. No one connected with anybody. I'm like, so this is what it's like to have a tribe. And the fact that he was a guy was better. But this was, like, around when Livestrong was taking off and this right. idea of your your life is more than your cancer I'm like, I'm just going to sponge the fuck out of this stuff. And I realized that I had the opportunity in 2006 to build a tribe that I wished I had. But I didn't want it to be this wristband, ribbon, athletic, you have to ride a bike shit with poor you and Hallmark cards and fuck this. And I couldn't call it fuck cancer because you don't get funding for that shit. So yeah. Homer Simpson ch was channeling me and he said, oh, stupid cancer. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't do Dan Castellaneta, but it just, it hit me. And I built what I wished I had for me in a selfish, selfless way. And going back to what we talked about before, if you find something that you didn't know you needed, it's your anchor. And Stupid Cancer became this anchor for millions of people that wished they had this. And we're thrilled it was there, pissed that they needed it, but a belonging about not feeling alone. Oh, man. I, so we have kids around the same age. I, my, well, my girls are 15 and 13. Yours are maybe a little younger. What, it's like, what are your kids? How old? They'll, they'll be 11 soon. I have twins for the listeners. Twins, that's right. So they're going to be 11. So, and, and these are the kind of human beings that you turn to and say, well, when they say, well, why don't you just go online and... Uh, Find people who are going through the same thing. You know, you turn to them and say, this was before Al Gore invented the internet. <laughs> and they say before the internet, right? So even I, when I ask you about your diagnosis, and, you know, I think about 1995, even I skip out and like have to think for a second, like, oh yeah, like what the hell are you going to do? Go to the yellow pages, go to the, like the city directories, like these like big giant books and like scroll through and look for the brain cancer people. I mean, Dude, I was watching Space exist. Jam in the Matrix. That's all there was. <laughs> right. And Friends. Yeah. Friends was good. I mean, honestly, when ER came on, it was great. But then they gave Mark Green a brain tumor. Like, fuck, I was enjoying this. Yeah. Until they couldn't... gave the guy a brain tumor. That couldn't have worked out worse for you. No, not good. Um, so, one so one phrase that I've seen you use before, man, I get I get a little emotional when I think about it. Is this phrase advocating for dignity? Um, I get emotional because dignity at the core of every patient's experience is something that you yearn for and something that you get taken. A lot of us have it taken away from us by by the machinery that we're ground up through, by, by, by the things that you go through. So to have stupid cancer and you come forth and, and tell us a little bit about what that means to you to advocate for dignity. So I'll put it to you this way. Let's look at, let, let's call it sick care for a second. I don't like to use platitudes, but like you only need it if you're sick, like really sick. I don't mean like break, broken bones and flu shots and shit. Mm. It's a store that you never plan to have to shop in. You have insurance in the event you have to shop in it. But once you're in that store against your will, you're naked and afraid with no greeter. That's all it comes down to. And again, going back to the fact that it is an economy of supply only, and there's no demand to be in that store. 
you are at the mercy mm. of that store's management without knowing where what's on what shelf and what it costs and its effect on you. And all you want is to whatever get through this means with some semblance of who you are as a human being not being ripped away from you. And the people you interact with in that store, they've worked in that store forever. And and they know how that store operates and they deal with people like you coming in every damn day. And so to them, it's just like you are. You're like that next person in. Here's the number. And they can't help the fact that they treat you like that. But the fact that they treat you like that hurts you as that per- But You know, this is your first day in that damn store. And all of a sudden, you're being treated like... Just not a human. Well, again, it goes back to a couple of things. Some are very disturbing. Some are not so, you know, Captain Obvious. But we start to look at medical training and empathy in medicine is still not a standard practice. There are always optionals and and uh, what do they call that? Um, uh, sidebar curricula or, or, or optional things. or I forget the, the term for it. Pra, um, practicum type of stuff. But at the same time, I was just on the phone yesterday with, with an up-and-coming medical researcher and an MD-PhD in Minnesota, and suicide rates in doctors is at an all-time high. Doctors, mm. oncologists, radiologists, rheumatologists, pulmonologists, they're killing themselves. They're committing suicide because of the pressures that this machine puts upon human beings who just actually want to help that's crazy man so your your trick there's this this contrapuntal cacophony this narrative that's happening from both sides did i mention my guy's wicked smart go ahead i'm very alliterative (laughs) that i'm aware i use syllables but i use good syllables i don't i try not to jargon myself i need like a jargon button but i I just try to lay person this you're shopping in a store that has management that's killing itself Against the backdrop of a an, an infrastructure that creates phenomenal medications that can save your life if you know they exist, if they're right for you, if you can afford them, if you can right. get to them. They don't make it easy to buy the shit on the shelf. So, again, I'm metaphoring all of this because it, it just has to be amplified from this perspective. It's never been as simplified as just saying it this it doesn't fix the problem but it escalates and elevates the idea of what is fundamentally flawed you're you know it's a perfect metaphor i love your metaphor i think we should all be using it and it makes me think of you know as the as a patient so i've been a cancer patient person with cancer thriver survivor whatever the hell language you want to say about me i've been there for about three years and I know in that store that they don't want people who ask questions. They don't generally want people who are educated and want to be part of those de- that decision-making because there is a well-oiled machinery. And if you disrupt that even a little bit, it's an inconvenience to them. And no matter what people want to say about wanting patients as partners, it's rare to find that. I've been lucky that I have found that in some of my care along the way, but a lot of people never find that. And and then, and they're made to feel bad if they ask questions or want to be educated about it. Well, it, it is very generational. Again, I, I try to defend equal sides because I, I live and breathe on both of the, of the, the conversations. Yeah. And a lot of it is nature nurture. Some of these prof- medical professionals are really in it to help people. And I've known a ton of them. And even going 100%. back to the nineties, my neurosurgeon was the most humane 
person I could have ever asked for. The man was an Orthodox Jew who met with my family on Shabbat. He skipped synagogue. He broke all the rules. And he just met my family mm. to talk about me and what was important to me and that he knew I was a pianist. And he would assure my family he'd do his best to operate on this tumor in a way that would not affect my ability to play piano. And I, you don't think that that's something that they would do. And I say they, that's a they like a broad brush. But again, yeah. my, my oncologist was not really a people person, you know. He was a great guy. He knew his stuff. He's an expert. I'm alive today because of his decisions and his wisdom. Not a people person, you know, which begs the question, do you really need your surgeon or your oncologist to be a therapist, or do you want them to be a machine that helps you and then the nurse is the therapist? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I want, what I want from my doctors and what I'm fortunate that I do have is is feeling like I'm part of that decision-making team and that I'm not talked down to as like, oh, this is just, you know, Joe patient can't understand this. Um, you know, it's that respect that I have the, I have the capacity as a learning human being to understand a lot of this stuff. It's like the same thing. If you were building a house, you can work with your architect. You don't have to be an architect to, to work on the plans of that house. You can learn about architecture. You can, you can, understand some of the basics. No, I'm not an oncologist. I'm not a surgical oncologist, but, but I can have very educated conversations and be part of the decision-making process. I can also make sure that I'm getting, you know, multiple opinions from multiple centers. Like, and so to your point though, there, there are, there are a lot of great people in medicine who are totally on board with that and support that. I think, unfortunately, a lot of the people that do support that are the ones that you're talking about that are getting totally burned out and fried because when you try to extend conversations beyond a certain minute, uh, or you try to do something extra for a patient, you're going outside of, you know, the boundaries of what the system wants you to do. Again, going back to the private sector shareholder, I don't think any cancer center should have shareholders. I mean, mm. I, I say that in a utopian way, but as soon as a, a health system is driven by profit, they have to figure out the best way to make money first. And how, how are you a a vending machine for them in that sense. So, I mean, I have a friend, he's a MD, PhD, brain tumor survivor guy, like geneticist, wizard, and he uses lots of syllables and he's, he, is, he is medical jargon for all the right reasons. His mom got multiple myeloma and he knew about treatments and trials and, and all these things for his mother and the doctor kind of disavowed him as a genomic researcher <laughs> telling this doctor of his mother with multiple myeloma that this trial is not right for her. And he's oh, like, God. no, it is. Do it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So you know, the, the, these people are not immune to being their own patients at the same time in firsthand experience. I mean, one of the first channeling the 80s or the 90s, there was a film called The Doctor with like William Hurt. And it was the first film where the doctor, a doctor with like this glib douchebag style, got cancer and became a patient and learned empathy for the first time. And then he went mm. up teaching empathy in medical school as the film ended. Like, we're still here 30 years later with the same shit. So circling on the, the one of the fundamental concept of Man Up to Cancer again is a lot of men going through cancer need supports in, in many different aspects of their life, but they're far less likely to accept help or reach out for help. 
than women. That's just, we know this anecdotally, we know this from studies around this. So in what ways did you, in your career, and in particular with stupid cancer, how, how did you go about, or how did you see that problem? And how did you go about trying to remove some of those barriers? I mean, I'm not an inherently masculine human being. I don't play sports. I don't care. I gave up on sports when the Mets lost in 87. That's kind of where I drew the line. I mean, yeah, the, absolutely. I think the Giants, smart. the Giants won in like in my against Miami. And uh, I was actually it was in Disney World in like 90 when the Giants won it with a last minute field goal. And I'm like, it's never getting better than this. And I'm done. You're done. So okay. I, I moving on. I know sports. I don't care. About. <laughs> I'm not really a masculine human being. But when I had the chance to build a brand that was in your face and masculine, that was kind of where I started to channel the ability to give guys a voice. Yeah. And just again, like for, for those that don't know the history of stupid cancer, it was very in your face. It was very matter of fact. We called that all sorts of crazy shit. And then we produced annual conventions that were just like these frat parties, crazy frat party three, four-day things in Vegas. Oh, man. We need the hot tub time machine activated right now so we can head back there. There's so many guys in the Wolfpack are in right now. I'm going to create Moogle. M- Moogle. Instead of Lugle, I'll do Moogle. Oh, okay. <laughs> come on. I just, that was just on. I mean, Craig Robinson does no wrong. John Cusack, come on. You, you just brought up another film that, that matters about guy shit. Right, exactly. But again, tribalism, when done right, really does work. It, we, we're seeing today as this recording is, is being made, tribalism can be the worst fucking thing to destroy the planet. But when done right, it can really help make life suck a whole lot less. So the way I channeled what I wish that I had and the way I channeled whatever virility existed in me was to try to build my own version of a man type of cancer brand against this feminine feminization of cancer, but I right. get it because breast cancer did change the world. We, we would not be here if not for the warriors in breast cancer. Honor the pink ribbon. Don't hate the pink ribbon. Oh, man. Honor the... Let me just interject. Honor the damn pink ribbon. I, I mean, and the breast cancer people out there who I'm connected to on social media and also here at the Dempsey Center in Maine were the first people to friggin' bring me in, hug me, hold me up, like love on me. Like So absolutely, 100% support them. I want to go to a place where they love on me. Come on up to Maine. It happens. It happens here. I did meet Patrick Dempsey once, and my wife said, go for it. So I met him a couple times now, and um, he's a beautiful human being. And I didn't understand the whole Grey's Anatomy thing with my daughter. My daughter has been binging on Grey's Anatomy. And then I met Patrick, and I was like, yep, yep. I get it. I get it all. In fact, I'm in. Yeah, so, yeah. he's on the list. <laughs> so sorry, I forgot where we were, but let me spin it forward here. Stupid cancer, age-appropriate psychosocial support, right? I think with Man Up to Cancer, gender-appropriate psychosocial support, because this is the thing. It's not politically correct to say, you know, and you can say all you want that the genders uh, should be treated exactly the same. But when it comes to giving support and camaraderie and, and what that looks like, tribalism to people going through cancer, in general, sexes need different things. Or a lot of people, um, based on their gender, do need different things. Men, The guys in the Howling Place need a different space than the women in, in another group. So I think that's, you know, I think it's okay to say that. No, it is. It's like genus and species. Like you could still be part of the same genus, but each species needs its own uniqueness, right? If we can be vertebrates, but mammals need different things, 
fishing exactly. different things. And, and, you know, and, and, and again, like if, if you stupid cancer was egalitarian, it wasn't about any one particular cancer or body part. But if you needed leukemia help or colon cancer help, here's where you go for that. We're not going to tell you how to live life with an ostomy. We're here to connect you with people who live life with ostomies. And from my perspective, a lot of men don't go into cancer support groups online, not because they don't want to be around women. Like, this is not an anti-women thing. In fact, it's an intimidation from women thing. A lot of these guys don't want to embarrass their, themselves in front of women, um, especially the younger guys. And, and by being vulnerable out there, we're still not allowed to be vulnerable as men. So having a place where you can do that, that's not exposing yourself in that way. Wow, that was a really horrible turn of the phrase there, Trev. Um, but anyways, th this place where you can share and not have to feel like you're being judged or being, it, 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 a lot of it comes down to men being insecure. Well, again, I think I think we've been sort of coddled to a sense where emasculine, e I'm not going to say, emasculinization. There we go. Bam. It worked. The brain did something. You know, <laughs> is, is kind of like, again, it's the softening of society. And this isn't a cancel culture conversation, but right. it is okay to be decay. I mean, the George decay, you know, it's okay. And... <laughs> I mean, when we started to attract more guys back to Stupid Cancer was when we created like a Just for Guys webinar, a Just for Girls webinar. We did intentional, it wasn't intentional divisiveness. It really was like, you know, this is for all of us, but if you need this, you go here. If you need this, you go here. I don't want to be in a room with girls talking about vaginal dryness. That's for them to talk about. But if I want to go into a room and talk about guys with testicular cancer, what it's like to live with an with an orchiectomy right. and right. not be not feel like a guy with no balls, yeah, I will yeah. be there for those guys. There's nothing wrong with that. And honestly, if someone says there is, fuck them. Yeah, exactly. And and to deny, I'm thinking of that guy out there, like you just said, like I, I got a buddy, um, prostate cancer, is not able to, you know, erectile dysfunction, all that stuff, and. For the first time, he has come into our group and said for the first time he's been able to find a place where he can share about it and feel comfortable and kind of just let off some steam around that because he wasn't comfortable doing it elsewhere. And so to deny the need, the need of that person to have a space like that is just wrong. So I, I think it's going great. It, there's no aspirations for me. Like it, it's just super simple. I don't want guys to feel like they have to be alone. That's it. Like, like I talked to you a year ago and I said that. I was like, <laughs> you're like, wow, that's a pretty simple premise. And, and there's nothing more than that, but I think what we've learned, what I've learned over the past year of doing this man up to cancer thing and seeing the response to the need is that there's not, there hasn't been too much attention paid to that problem. Well, you definitely filled a gap where stupid cancer wasn't able to. And again, the testicular cancer groups are fabulous, but it's one particular type of cancer. Right. And it's the only cancer that's kind of just guys. I'm like, oh, I get prostate technically because yeah. women don't have prostates. But right. again, prostate is also very generational too. So you're also creating like these micro segments with a man up to cancer, which are also equally valuable. If you're 26 with testicular cancer and you're getting your life together, you're dealing with work and career and insurance and dating, you're in a different life space than an 80 year old guy dealing with it, but you can still learn from each other. Going back to, it's not about what you have. It's about what you have in common. Exactly. We got, you know, I'm, I'm sure they won't mind if I mention them, but we got a guy like Scott Clark, my buddy from South Bend, Indiana, who's on in the Howling Place every damn morning with a post talking about have a, you know, make this a great day, gives us our weather report. I mean, the guy's a freaking rock star. His, his wife got him on Facebook specifically to join this group. And, and now he's on there every day being part of it. And he's such a valuable member. And then we got guys like 
um, Rob Robinson in their 20s um, who have found the group and they're on there and they're connecting with Scott and learning from one another. We had a Zoom the other day when we had a guy on a Peloton in New York City talking to a guy in Arkansas, uh, you know, about, you know, duck hunting. Uh, I mean, so to connect these people in this way, I mean, think about 1995, man. And, and and so for all my complaints and gripes, like, man, we are pretty friggin' lucky to have this. And, and I know people are going to bash on the platforms, but we're pretty damn lucky to be able to connect in the ways that we can connect right now. Well, I, again, I, so many <laughs> thoughts on that. But, you know, honestly, and this is just a level set for everyone, 1% of everything makes 99% of the noise. So it's very easy. And that's that's data. That's not me making shit up. 1% makes 99% of the noise. The average human being, as part of a regular, normal, societal bell curve, is not that. And it's just too easy to get caught up in that. And if again, a, just a teachable moment for your listeners and, and for me is this is like the most non-conspiratorial documentary I've seen in a very long time was The Social Dilemma. Because it's so akin to the healthcare system. And I I was listening to it and watching it from mm. the perspective of the allegory of the healthcare system. It was built to profit, not to help. If it happened to help, that would be great. But if it made more money not helping, it would right. make more money. So that's the gist. Of, it, it's not there to, I mean, yes, it scares the fuck out of you. But it really helps to level set the fact that if you take yourself out of the equation, then you can control the equation. Beautifully said. It is time to put Matthew Zachary on. We used to call it the man up to cancer hot seat. With all of our colon cancer guys, that was getting a bit, I was concerned about that. So now I call (laughs) it the gauntlet of random questions. Matthew, are you ready? Yes, I am, Trevor. All right, here we go. What's the best type of cheese? Three-year-old aged cheddar. Very good. If you were arrested, what would your friends and family assume you had done? Computer hacking. I, more spe- Come on, just expand uh, on that. Hacking the election. <laughs> I think we might have some breaking news right here. Dominion <laughs> and Matthew Zachary. It's me. <laughs> it's me. I built the voting machines. <laughs> UFOs and aliens are among us. Yes or no? Yes. I love your confidence. You're you're killing the rapid fire here. Would you rather be forced to listen to today's hit country 24-7 or Geico ads 24-7? Oh, God. Geico. That tells us a lot right there, buddy. Yeah. A lot of the country guys are tuning you out, man. You got to get a little, little more countrified. But I want to say 50% every 30 seconds. <laughs> what What actor would play you in a movie about your life? John Favreau. I love that. That would be good. Would you rather travel back in time to meet your ancestors or in the future to meet your descendants? Back in time to meet my ancestors because the earth will probably not be here in 100 years. God, don't get so cynical on us toward the end here, buddy. Come on. Well, you know, the earth will be here. Just we might not. Right. 2020 is 2021. It's going to solve everything. Uh, Okay. The last and most important question on the gauntlet. This is a big one. Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? There's no middle ground. Only in Hawaii. I said there's no middle ground. I need a yes or no. No. God bless you, Matthew Zachary. You have just passed the test. 
Um, I'm very happy with that. You and all the other smart people I've interviewed have passed that correctly, and all the other people can just, you know, go away. I just said today on my on on Facebook, you know, if you're going to eat pizza over the holidays, make sure you stay safe and don't have pineapple. So. <laughs> I'm going to concur. In all seriousness, I want to thank you again. You've been such a big support to me and to what we're doing here with the guys, and and I appreciate it. And to watch to watch you go crazy, like, dude, you're you're such a beast, man. Like inspiration. Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna break form here and ask you one more question. So, like, you could just play Crossy Road or or roll over and pull the covers up, but you get up and you do these podcasts and you you you're just killing it. Uh, Let's end with a little bit of motivation. What what really drives you at the heart of it? What get, keeps you going with all this? I'd like to feel that if I didn't do it, it wouldn't get done. Perfect. Matthew Zachary, Offscript Media. Check him out. He's not on every channel, like he said, uh, but he's on a lot of them. Uh, you can find him easily. Check out the content. It's awesome. Appreciate you being here, brother. Thank you. Thank you very much for the honor and the pleasure. You're doing good stuff. And you are the only group on Facebook I belong to. And... I am really barely on Facebook. So there you go. Good stuff. Bam. I love it. All right. Thank you. We'll All right. Soon. Thanks for listening to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. If you want to get behind our mission, you can connect with us, subscribe to our email list, and check out our other content at manuptocancer.com. And if you know a man struggling with the isolation that cancer can bring, let him know about us. The Wolfpack doors are always open. Open.